Trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about physical abuse and torture, which some listeners may find extremely upsetting or distressing. So please listen with caution. episode of the Just Checking In podcast with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each episode, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. Brace yourselves for this episode, listeners, because it's one I have never done before on the Just Checking In pod, because my special guest for this episode is someone who has gone through one of the most harrowing experiences I've ever talked about. Her name is Anna Diamond, and Anna is a British political commentator, researcher, and human rights activist who is one of the founding members of the Alliance Against State Hostage Taking. The organisation was formally founded in New York on 24th of September 2019. Anna was born in Iran, but holds dual British and Finnish citizenship, and she now lives in London, where she spent most of her life. In the summer of 2014, Anna visited her birth country of Iran when she was in her second year of university. What started out as a pretty fun experience turned extremely worrisome, as Anna and her family were imprisoned by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, who arrested her on false espionage charges and accused her of being a spy for MI6. She was only 19 years old at the time. Anna was placed in solitary confinement for eight months, where she experienced both mental torture and physical beatings and abuse at the hands of guards who brought her out on occasion for interrogation. She was even put through a mock execution where she genuinely believed she would be killed. In this episode, we discuss her nomadic lifestyle growing up, always having to adjust to different countries, different cultures, her experiences in Iran, and the PTSD that initially gave her the idea of post-traumatic growth and lots more. So for anyone who's of a nervous disposition or feels uncomfortable with listening to this, obviously this is another trigger warning before I go ahead. But this is how my check-in with Anna went. Anna, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for coming on and telling your unbelievable story with me. At time of recording... In the UK, we are just about inching ourselves towards some level of normality. So how are you at the moment? How are you coping and how are you getting on? Hi, Freddie. Well, thank you so much for having me on this really great podcast. It's not every day you come across podcasts that specifically focus on mental health. So I'm really grateful to be here. Yeah, I'm just enjoying life. It's been quite sunny so I'm enjoying that while it lasts, <laughs> given the usual normal English weather. So before it returns back to being rainy, I'm just chilling, so to say. Yeah, the beer gardens are going to be a madness this weekend for any sense of sunshine, for sure. So, Anna, the journey you have been on is something out of a Hollywood movie in many respects. Not, not, not always a positive Hollywood movie, but definitely a Hollywood movie in some respects. I'm just in awe of what you've been through and what you've managed to recover from. Let's just start the show. This pod's going to be nice and straightforward, Anna. We're just going to talk all about your journey. 
It's a big journey, but we're going to just talk about this. So I ask all my guests this question first. Tell me about your early life, initially growing up in Iran, and then when you started to move about, teenage years, family. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Anna we meet here? Because you told me you had a pretty eccentric childhood. Yes, Freddie. <laughs> I think eccentric is a good way of putting it. So I was born in Iran in 1994 to two loving parents. I didn't actually get the opportunity to grow up there because we left Iran when I was about four years old. But I've had a really, I would say, a very exhilarating slash adventurous slash extremely challenging at times upbringing, uh, which has been largely nomadic. So we've moved around a lot. And when we left Iran, we moved to Turkey, and then we moved to Finland, and then briefly France, and then, uh, you know, ultimately made the UK our home. I mean, UK was our destination anyway, but because of my parents' occupations and jobs, we had to, we kind of went everywhere before arriving in the UK. And then I also moved to the US briefly. So <laughs> I've been a traveler, a constant traveler. And yeah, I think that has shaped a lot of who I am today. Your dad was a scholar and a writer. And he saw what kind of a country Iran at the time was turning into as his colleagues began being basically disappeared by the state. Can you give a bit of context to listeners about the Iranian regime back then who don't know anything, let's say, about Iran and its government and the historical context and the political context, I guess, as well? Yeah, absolutely. So Iran is, I would say, a quite a unique anomaly case. So Iran, before 1979, was a monarchy ruled by Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. He was a king, and Iran had had a monarchy for 2,500 years. So it went back a long time, right to the early, I mean, even before the birth of Christ with the Persian Empire. So, you know, it, there was a successive reigns of different dynasties. But then in 1979, an Islamic revolution happened and a theocratic government was installed by the coming of Ayatollah Khomeini from France. And that pretty much changed everything, not just in Iran, but in the region. And just to give a bit of context, so Iran is located next to Iraq. So Iraq and Turkey to its west Afghanistan and Pakistan to its east, and then Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan to north, and also Russia. And then to south, you have the Persian Gulf and United Arab Emirates and Oman. So Iran is located right in the center of this ancient Silk Road connecting east to west. And for that reason, it was a very treasured geographical location for the West, you know, for the British and the Americans. And so when the Islamic Revolution happened, all of that was just turned upside down. But I think it was expected that some sort of a revolution would happen because truly people were unhappy with the Shah. There was a lot of corruption. There was a lot of mismanagement, a lot of hiding. The Shah's intelligence service called Savak was notorious for its crackdown of any opposition. 
So really, when we're talking about <laughs> the Islamic Republic of Iran today and its very heightened security apparatus, it's really nothing new. And it existed during the Shah's time, but just under a different regime. But that's what makes it upsetting, because when you have a revolution, you want things to change, right? You don't want the same thing to continue just under a different reign and ruling elite. But unfortunately, that didn't change and, and things got progressively worse. And my dad was born in late 1960s. He witnessed the revolution. He was a young boy and he kind of grew up with the revolution and saw the Iran-Iraq war which lasted for eight years. And he comes from a very traditional family that values religion and cherished customs, cultural customs and so on and so forth. So he went into Islamic studies. He became a scholar of Islamic studies, specifically Shia Islam. And then he became a writer alongside that. He was never a journalist, but he was a columnist and would write opinion pieces primarily in, I would say, reformist slash progressive newspapers. But as you rightfully mentioned, towards the end of 1990s, when Iran's elected president, Mr. Khatami, came into power, he promised that there would be more freedom of expression, freedom of press, less regulation on hijab, more women's rights would be respected. So he was a very open-minded and liberal president, or at least that's what he was portrayed as. He was also very eager to re-establish ties with the United States because the ties had just gone in a downward spiral since 1979, particularly because Iran took American embassy staff as hostage for over a year. So none of that really, of course, sit well with the Americans, understandably. So my dad, towards the end of 1990s, under this so-called liberal president, he noticed that a lot of new newspapers were emerging. They were more critical of the Islamic Republic. They were more critical of the Islamic Revolutionary Guards, which is it's a separate military organization that runs alongside the whatever administration is, is in power. But it's actually a deep state. So they pretty much run and orchestrate a lot of the security operations. And while you have this liberal president in office, the security organizations run in parallel and what they did is that to balance out the society opening up to the world, they started a heavy crackdown. And my dad noticed that his colleagues were literally disappearing and people didn't know where they were. They had either gone into hiding or they had been arrested. But because he didn't know what was really happening, he of course could guess, but that's a different story. Anyway, long story short, <laughs> I feel like I went on for some time about this. But so he felt like the country was turning into a place where it was no longer inhabitable, given that you had to speak within the boundaries set by the regime. And those boundaries were increasingly being tightened. So there was really no freedom or, or personal liberty. There was a lot more that went into it, but he thought, you know what, this is not the country I want my children to grow up in. I want to talk a little bit about that nomadic lifestyle and childhood, Anna, before we move on to the 
experience you had in Iran in 2014. I've lived in East London all my life, so I really feel a sense of belonging and place. I struggle to think where else I would live, to be honest, if I were to move. How did moving about impact your friendship groups when you're moving countries? You know, do you still have friends from those different countries you lived in? Because you said to me that every place you lived in felt like a layover. Can you explain that for me and how that impacted your mental health? Yeah, Freddie, that's an excellent question. It's also a very difficult one because this is the only life I've ever known. So I don't really know what to compare it with. Sometimes I do try to reflect on my upbringing, but because I don't know the alternative, I'm not able to articulate how I was different. But, you know, looking back to when I was four, five, six, and, you know, we moved to Turkey and then to Finland, I think you know, I was always an extroverted child. I loved attention. I loved to be at the center of attention. I don't know if it has something to do with my zodiac sign being a Leo. <laughs> For those that believe in astrology. But all of that kind of changed when we moved out of Iran. I had difficulty connecting with other children because there was the language barrier. And obviously when you're a child, everything is new anyway so <laughs> so to have that wall between you and the other children i found it incredibly difficult to connect people of my own age and this kind of continued in finland as well and interestingly i was able to make more friends with elder people so people who were much older than i was and I don't know if that's because they were more understanding and they tried more to communicate with me because other children just wouldn't have the energy and the span of attention. But I think it was also because I took on more responsibility as a child and there was more expectations from me. And in a way, I like matured before my time. And what I mean by that is... When you are a child of immigrants, you have to help a lot. So once I picked up the language, I noticed that, you know, while my friends were out there attending Paramore or Panic at the Disco concerts, it's like, oh my gosh, I want to go and vibe with them. But then I was at home and I was proofreading my dad's university submissions. And then sometimes I would have to chase up official stuff, like if there was something wrong with the utilities bill or, or our insurance. So imagine me at the age of like 12, <laughs> like calling these companies. And they knew I was a child because of my voice, of course. I guess what I'm trying to say is that with all of that and taking more responsibility, I kind of got an insight to what it's like to be an adult before I was an adult. And for that reason, my ability to connect with people who were older than I was, was easier than people of my own age. By the time you arrived in the UK, you had moved to three different countries, you'd lived in 30 different flats, and you'd studied at 12 schools. So obviously, as you say, the positive sides were that you were able to assimilate quite quickly because you were young and you were able to pick up the language. You were able to be a sort of social chameleon with a lot of people. Can you tell me about mm. that assimilation into the UK and that journey? Because you said to me that your English at that point was pretty poor by your own admission and you were struggling to convince schools to even take you on despite your natural intelligence. Can you explain that journey for listeners? Did it did that level of rejection hurt you or make you feel like inadequate at all? 
Yeah, so when we moved to the UK, I think I was about 14, 15. So all of that moving around had occurred by the age of 14, 15. So it was a lot to take on, but I didn't recognize it at the time as such. I just thought, well, I'm just going with the flow, right? So I was trying to get into a school where I could do my A-levels. And despite being, I would say, A student, overall an A student in Finland, no college or no sixth form was ready to take me on because I couldn't hold a basic conversation in English. Well, I think I could hold a basic conversation, but whenever the questions were a bit more complicated and I had to elucidate what I meant, then I froze. So eventually I was accepted at a college in Westminster because one of the tutors, I think he saw potential in me. He asked me to write an essay in English about I think it was about my life but like a short essay and I didn't know what to write because I didn't know how to write an essay in English and so I just rewrote a poem by Charles Bukowski because I loved Charles Bukowski, I loved Sylvia Plath, I loved Edgar Allan Poe and I would read their poems in English but like I would use a translator because of course that's like high literature or was high literature for me at the time. And I wrote Bukowski's poem, Roll the Dice, and it was literally, you have this essay page and then I've just written the short poem. And um, <laughs> and yeah, I think the tutor just thought, well, that's an interesting essay, so-called essay. And yeah, and I think he was surprised that a child aged like 14, 15, a teenager at that time, took Bukowski as their role model and was like reading their pose. He's talking about like being an alcoholic and sleeping with prostitutes and whatnot. And there I am like a <laughs> a feeling what he's supposedly understanding what he's talking about. But anyway, so yeah, after that essay, well, I, I don't know if I should refer to it as an essay, but anyway, that submission, they accepted me. But until then, I did go to many schools and they just said, no, just because, as I said, like they thought I wouldn't be able to keep up. And I think at the time, I didn't really see them as rejection. I saw it more as, okay, well, on to the next school and on to the next school. So like more like redirection. But then later on, when I was doing my A-levels, I did think that all of that was... In a way, I almost felt like I didn't fit in anywhere I went. And yeah, I just didn't feel good enough, even though I was accepted. And then I think once I got into A-levels and I saw how well other kids spoke English and how they got on with each other and how everyone was making friends, all of that like started sinking in. So that was a difficult period, those two years when I was doing my A-levels. <laughs> Let's fast forward a couple of years now because the work you put in at A-levels meant you got into King's College London with straight A's. Did you feel like you were proving yourself right? Did you feel like you were proving those schools who rejected you wrong? And what did you learn about yourself in that period? So as I mentioned just now that, you know, I had a very difficult time when I was doing my A-levels, I wasn't able to basically balance out social life and academia. So I ended up putting a lot of weight into academia because I thought this is something that will stay with me. But with the people, because I had, again, this is kind of go, goes back to my childhood, because I had moved around so much and all my friends had almost been like temporary companions, 
sadly. I thought if I now invested my time and effort in individuals rather than in my education, they could be taken away from me too, or that they could leave and I would be left high and dry. <laughs> but then with academia, you know, that's an intangible asset that will stay with you. So I put a lot of effort in getting good grades. And that meant some sacrifices such as, you know, from my A-levels, I think I did know a lot of people. I was great at small talk. I was great at making acquaintances, but I could count with one hand the friends I made while I was studying A-levels. My circle was very minimal. So because I invested so much attention to my grades and getting better, I did actually eventually get all A's and one B and I got into King's, which proved me right, you know, which proved my expectations of myself correct because I thought if I could get in, that would mean that all of this effort would bear fruit. It also showed me that setting personal goals is important and your objectives and your own aims and your own goals don't have to make sense to anyone else. Because I remember I had a friend at college and I told her that I was applying for King's. By the way, this is at the time of A-levels and when we were you know, studying for the exams. And at the time you were only able to choose five universities for your UCAS when you were applying for universities, you were only allowed to pick five. And I remember my friend, well, she's no longer my friend. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> But she said, why are you wasting one of your UCAS spots if you know you're not going to get into Kings? And I just thought, well, what do you mean <laughs> I'm not going to get into Kings? And she said, well, listen, you can't write a proper essay. Your English is still, you know, getting there. And there is no way you can get into Kings. So don't waste that. Just apply somewhere else, somewhere within your reach. And I just thought, listen, <laughs> it's game time. <laughs> And yeah, so like your goals only have to make sense to you because they're your goals and they don't have to make sense to anyone else. So I learned that even if you think something is reachable and those around you think it's not reachable, just you do you. Like they don't see what you see and they don't have the energy that you have or the consistency. So yeah, getting to Kings was a good time after long period of hardship. I'm glad you sacked off that mate as well, because I mean, that sounds like a person you don't need in your life for sure. I want to move on now, Anna, to the bulk of your mental health experiences or the negative mental health experiences, I should say, which is that you were imprisoned by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in 2014 when you were in your second year at King's College London. Can you tell me first and the listeners why you and your family decided to travel there? Obviously, knowing why you had left the country in the first place. And then when things started to go a bit bad. Yes. So we decided to travel to Iran in the summer of 2014. A bit of context again, because I think it's important. So 2014 marked the start of a new era for Iran. Well, that's what a lot of people thought, at least. And... There were talks with the president, Hassan Rouhani, and his cabinet with the Obama administration. And they created this thing called Interim Nuclear Accord, which was the beginning of the Iran nuclear deal, or better known as JCPOA, that came later on. 
And during this time, again, much like the Khatami era, people thought, wow, Iran is opening up, liberal president, so many progressive policies, amazing. These are moderates, hardliners are going to go away. And for a moment, that was true because the revolutionary rhetoric that had dominated Iran's media for so long was in a way being toned down. And, and people were like sighing of relief. And I think even the Telegraph in 2015 had chosen Iran as one of its top travel destinations, as one of the countries that were opening up to the world and like now is your chance to see it. But actually, a lot of foreigners did go to Iran. I remember when I was in Tehran, I, I met a lot of Germans, a lot of French people. And when I say a lot, I don't actually mean in crowds, but more like more than what the Iranian population was used to receiving. But so we went to Iran for different reasons. So my parents had their own reason. I wanted to see my grandparents, but it was mostly to do with family affairs. And yeah, and then things just went down. <laughs> it's actually interesting when you look back at the early red flags but because I was so optimistic and I was naive too, I was in denial. I didn't want to see them. I didn't want to recognize the red flags. I thought, you know what, something good is going to come out of this. But so when I arrived in Tehran at the airport, I was pulled aside and my bags were searched, my passports were taken. One of the revolutionary guards, I didn't know they were revolutionary guards at the time, but they said that my passport was invalid and that I had bribed to get it. And I was trying to explain that, no, I got it from the Iranian embassy in London. But my Persian was relatively poor at the time. So there was that, again, the language barrier, which made it difficult to be on the same page. But fast forward a few months and we've been told that they are investigating something and that if we want to speed up the matters, it's better we collaborate and, you know, do as we are told to do. I was summoned to attend different questioning sessions at different safe houses across Tehran. And each time I would go, I would see the interrogator, you know, we would sit face to face. They would ask me about my life in the UK, my life in the US, because by that time I had had a short stint in the US as well. I was also asked to write all the countries I've traveled to. So they were very general questions, nothing specific. And I thought, you know what, this is okay. I can do this. That's fine. But after about three, four months, I was like, my university has started and I have to get back. And I started sending out emails to my university and British Foreign Ministry. And I also sent emails to my friends. And well, I used to be a volunteer with a political party and I sent emails to them as well. By the way, the political party is a British one. So I was part of the conservatives at the time. Nothing related to Iran. We didn't even discuss Iran. So I don't want any of your darling listeners to think that I was doing some anti-regime activities here. No, like during my upbringing, Iran was never even a prominent topic in our household, let alone, hey, let's spend our time raging against the regime. Like we did not waste our energy doing that just because we had launched a new life abroad and that's just it. 
Right. Yeah. So, and then I was under a travel ban for about 500 days. And during this travel ban, nothing was ever made clear to us. We were told that the investigation is ongoing and that we would get back our passports quickly if we just did what they told us to do. My dad was kept at a safe house for a prolonged period of time beyond the interrogations. So, as I said, a lot of red flags. You know, when I was looking at the Iran news cycle, not just the Iranian domestic media, but also in the international media, I noticed that Iran was shown in this very, I would say, interesting way where you have like an interesting juxtaposition. So one end, Iran was portrayed as this flourishing country with a lot of potential. And then on the other hand, you had a lot of news about an American-Iranian Washington Post journalist being arrested in Iran for espionage charges. And then alongside that, you had a British-Iranian young student who was arrested on activities against the regime. So just to name them, the American-Iranian journalist is Jason Rezaian, and the British-Iranian student is Ronche Ravamin. And there were also other news about you know, people getting arrested for different things going on that were not directly national security related. So they didn't really get a big segment of the headlines. But so for me, that was an interesting juxtaposition because on one end, we're saying Iran is progressing. And then on the other hand, you have these people that are getting arrested for being spies, but then there is really no evidence to prove that they were spies. So, yeah, (laughs) I just kept going and I thought, all right, well, what can I do? You can't leave the country, so we'll just stick with it. I made use of my time. I started interning with the United Nations in Iran. I was an intern with them for nearly a year. I was still an intern with them when I was arrested in 12th January 2016. My work laptop was confiscated. My work phone was taken. So all of that is UN property, by the way. And then... January 2016 came along. So the listeners know how serious that false charge was. The minimum sentence in Iran for espionage is 10 years. The maximum is the death penalty, although it's slightly ambiguous from what you told me. You were then placed in solitary confinement for eight months or 200 days, which is a form of torture, especially mental torture. Tell me how you felt during those eight months. Maybe give the listeners a mental picture of what those prison cells were like and then maybe how your mind and body began to deteriorate. Right, so January 2016 was the month when I was arrested, 12th of January to be specific, and I was taken to what is often described as notorious Evan prison and I was placed in the 2A solitary section, solitary confinement section, which is run by the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. And just to give you an image of what that place is like, Evan Prison is not an ordinary prison. It's a large compound. It dominates the landscape of northern Tehran. It's also, it's very fascinating because the minute you walk out of Evan, you're met with the vibrancy of the city. So you're not really even going far out of Tehran. It's literally in Tehran. And to imagine that all that torture and injustice is happening, being surrounded by this city 
you know, Tehran is amazing. It's beautiful. I personally loved everything about the city. But for me, it was just mind-blowing that you had all that life and vibrancy and, and the buzz going on. And then right next to it, you have these torture chambers. The cell I was placed in initially was two meters wide and two meters in length and width. So when I lied down and I, I was stretching, my hands could touch the wall above me and my feet, the wall beneath me or like, you know, horizontally. And there was nothing in the cell. It's just a concrete box. There is no bed. There is no TV. There is no entertainment of any sort. You have the fluorescent lights on 24-7. The walls are all white. So I think that's kind of reinforces the white torture that you mentioned earlier. And then, you know, you're met with a metal door, a heavy metal door. It has a small opening at the bottom of it. That's kind of where they give your food from. And you're all by yourself. It's kind of where all your demons come out, essentially, because it's just you, your god and your demons. Like you said, this form of torture is known as white torture, whereby the mental torture begins to make your body exhibit physical symptoms too. Can you tell the listeners about some of those examples and then why the Iranian government or the Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard use this method for political reasons? By my anecdotal experience, of course, this varies from person to person. I've heard some very harrowing accounts of what people have experienced in solitary confinement. Some have gone as far as to attempt to commit suicide, which is very difficult because you don't really have anything to assist you in doing that. So you really have to go to extreme lengths to make it happen, which just shows how huge the desperation, how severe the desperation is. For me personally, the most difficult part wasn't necessarily being alone. For me, the most difficult part was the treatment I received from the interrogators and the female guards. And I noticed the very, I don't know, I don't know if it's, if this is a good way of describing it. I think for the lack of a better word, I had this like bipolar way of viewing what their role was. So on one hand, I wanted to be in the cell to be away from the interrogators and the female guards. But then on the other hand, I wanted out of the cell because, you know, it was getting too much. You know, I don't mind being alone, but when being alone extends to 20 days and you have nothing, then that is incredibly destructive. And that's really, I think you lose sight of who you are and your identity just crumbles. You no longer have a truthful view of who you are as a character. So in order to like keep your individuality, you need some social interaction just to know who you are, that you still exist. And therefore I, I wanted to go to interrogations. So it's, it's like there was that duality of not wanting to go and wanting to go. And that alone was just, was mentally very heavy because it's like either way you're getting beaten up, you know? And solitary confinement, and why torture is used by the Revolutionary Guards because it's very effective 
as I said, people want to get out of solitary, so they will most likely do anything that you ask them, granted that you've kept them there for a long enough time, whether that is a false confession or self-destruction. And it's really difficult talking about these things because I think I still am trying to understand exactly how I feel about that period. But what I know for sure is that the Revolutionary Guards use this technique, as I said, because it's effective, but also because it doesn't leave physical traces. Now, the mental torture I was experiencing did have physical manifestation. So I had incredible abdominal pain. When I had my menstruation, I would have extremely heavy bleeding, which was just not normal. And I experienced on many occasions, very severe cardiac tachycardia, which means that my heart was beating very fast rate, you know, 250 beats per minute, 280 beats per minute. And that was actually something I ended up carrying with me when I came to the UK. And I was hospitalized for it for three months, which just goes to show how dismissive and negligent the Revolutionary Guards are when they keep you in solitary confinement. Because I told them that I had this problem, that I couldn't breathe, that I was fainting, and that I was really scared for my life because of how my heart was reacting to my conditions, to the condition of the solitary confinement. And I remember they gave me Jelofen, which is like a headache drug. And I said, listen, I have a headache. I have a migraine from this constant fluorescent light that you have on. But the headache medication is not going to solve my cardiac issues. And they wouldn't take me to a health professional. And so there is there was great medical negligence, which I understood much later when I came to the UK, because I remember my GP said, listen, you need help for this and you need it now. So, you know, the UK, in the UK, they had the urgency to get me help. But then in Iran, it was like, well, it's okay. You know, you'll get over it. Yeah, (sighs) gosh. Like you said, Anna, you were interrogated for up to 12 hours a day to the point where you had this mental paradox where your cell became a safe space from the beatings. But then at the same time, the torture of being in that cell meant your mind almost weirdly wanted the interrogations just as a bit of respite and escape from the isolation. About seven months into that imprisonment, the interrogations stopped and you spent about 20 days on your own with no human contact. Would you say that was the most, and we'll talk about the mock execution in a second, but would you say that was the most difficult moment for you? Um, It was difficult. Was it the most difficult part? I think, yes, it was because... I genuinely felt like I had been forgotten and that my suffering had no place in the world because nobody was seeing it. And I felt like I was rendered invisible and I was in this immense catastrophical pain and agony and nobody knew and nobody paid attention. And that lasted for 20 or so days. And during that time... In a way, I almost lost all hope for myself, for the world, for anyone to come and rescue me. I don't really know what I wanted from others. I don't know if I wanted people to campaign for my release. I don't know if I wanted 
a SWAT team to come through and rescue me from Evan like they do in one of those American spy thriller films. But I just wanted things to end and and you can have an ending in various different ways. You know, it can it can be a good ending, it can be a tragic ending, but I just wanted it to end. And it was really difficult because I couldn't comprehend why I was being put through it. And precisely because I was so young and I thought there is no way the authorities can see a teenager, a 19-year-old, as the culprit for all their problems, for the corruption, for the mismanagement, for water drought, for the sanctions. I just didn't understand it. And I couldn't understand it because there was nothing to understand. I was innocent. But yeah, so that period was definitely the most destructive period because oh it's just so many feelings but it was very very agonizing truthfully learning about your journey Anna the most horrifying moment for me came when you told me about your mock execution where you were literally put on your knees and you were told to prepare for death if you could just tell the listeners about the build-up to that event and how you felt in that moment as 99.999% of listeners will never go through this experience in life, and I hope they never do. You said to me it almost felt like a parodied theatre show. Tell me what you meant by that. So the build-up to the mock execution, again, just a bit of context. During these interrogations, the far most used technique without physically torturing you because they're at all costs, they're avoiding leaving, as I said, physical marks on your body because they know you will be released and they know you'll be let out into the public. So they can't risk you showing how you were, I don't know, electrocuted or you had your nails pulled out or they just cannot afford that. So the first and foremost used technique is gaslighting and making you feel like you're not sane and leading you to corners of your mind where you're questioning your sanity and you're questioning your identity, you're questioning your own memories. And when you do that, everything becomes easily manipulative and they can easily play with your memories, they can insert new memories, they can make you consider that you've been to places where you've never realistically set foot in and so they offer you an exit they tell you that you can end the suffering and you can end the suffering by cooperating with them now for me multiple ways of cooperation were shown one was a false confession that I would admit that I was a spy and that I had collaborated with hostile governments namely the US UK and at times also Israel, that false confession had to include me discrediting my parents, specifically my dad, and speaking against my dad. And that cooperation also included being what they called double spy. So they wanted me to work two ways. So I would work for the intelligence services of MI6, CIA, and Mossad. It's interesting that they thought I was simultaneously working for all three Or at least they made it seem like they thought so, which is just practically impossible. And then on top of that, they wanted me to spy for them, so to be an IRGC spy. And 
again, I couldn't comprehend it because I wasn't a spy to begin with. And so how would I be able to work two ways if I wasn't a spy to begin with? What was I supposed to do? And I remember they told me that they could arrange everything for me and they could give me the best insurance. I would have the most skilled colleagues and they would often say that they have agents all over the UK and also all over Israel and they often said that they know the map and the geographics of Israel like the palm of their hands. But you know time and time again I refused that because I knew that there is no way I would make a false confession and walk as a free woman. There was no way that I would agree to be a double spy and walk as a free woman. And also there was no way that I would make favors <laughs> to a regime, to an intelligence service that had abused me so tremendously. I don't owe you anything. I don't need to work for you. I do not want to work for you. I don't want to portray countries that have offered me opportunities. UK by that point had literally accepted me as an adopted child of its own, <laughs> you know? So for me to come and reverse all that and say, you know what, just, yeah, let me go. Even though I knew they wouldn't let me go and I will do X, Y, Z, it just wasn't feasible. So they said, okay, well, you're not cooperating with us. You're not speaking against your parents. We have no use for you. And so they put me in a separate cell, which was far smaller than my initial cell. And they said, we'll keep you here until we get orders on how to take your verdict forward. And by that time, I had been told without an official hearing, by the way. I had been told informally that I had been sentenced to death by a prosecutor. So there is a lot of flaws in that. I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't have access to consular advice. I didn't have any contact with any outside world. So all of it was just rigged and flawed. And there was no unbiased and impartial judiciary at play. I was in the cell and I think I was there for about three days and I had the option of knocking at the door in case if I wanted to say, hey, I'm ready to do whatever you tell me to do. But I spent those three days really just, I'm a spiritual person. I believe in God and I believe in having a larger purpose. I believe that whatever happens to us is an experiment, is a test and that we will inevitably, if we stay true to ourselves that we will come out stronger and with a larger meaning for life and so when I was there I think that sentiment was strengthened and instead of losing all hope like I did during the 20 year uh, 20 days of solitude <laughs> complete isolation this time actually I gained hope and I said if God wants me to go through this I will and and so I just prayed for three days I was just praying hysterically <laughs> I don't know what I was praying for I can't exactly remember precisely but I remember that I just prayed continuously and then at the end of those three days I was taken 
from my cell at around 4 or 5 a.m. I wasn't told the time, but I remember when I was being taken out of the 2A solitary unit and I was put into a van. By the way, I was blindfolded throughout, so I couldn't see anything. But, you know, I felt the kind of crisp air of morning sun as it was about to rise. And I was put in the van and we drove. Now, I don't know where they drove. They might have been driving in circles to make it seem like the journey was long. Or they could have actually gone somewhere more distant. But they did take me to a relatively remote area where I felt like I was kind of going uphill. and. I had two guards before me and I and I'm sure a few behind me as we were walking but I had my handcuffs on and I also had feet cuffs so yeah I felt like I was stepping into the unknown but at the same time you know I I'm a film student and I was a film student at the time and I had watched all these films and I never thought anything of the like would happen to me. And on that moment, I almost felt like I was in a Truman show. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen the film, but it's about a man who lives through life and eventually finds out that he was on a movie set, on a film set, and all of it was just for a show. And so I think on that moment, I really felt like this was a farce a, a, a theater show and I don't know if it's me like disassociating from the situation maybe it's a coping mechanism trying to rationalize what was happening because I had a lot a very strong sense of out of body experience where I saw myself from somebody else's point of view because my visuals were completely cut off you know I couldn't see where I was going so because I, I saw things from like a third person perspective, I think that contributed a lot to that feeling of feeling like it was a theater parody or a show about to start or, or had started. But yeah, so that was definitely a, a very prominent feeling that I had, which is, will somebody just cut it out and say, all right, done, break, <laughs> water break. <laughs> so yeah. It was very mentally very challenging, for sure. You told me that by this point, the torture had disintegrated your mind so much that I'm right in saying that your mental health state shared a lot of commonalities in what suicidal people feel in that you didn't fear death, but you didn't want to live anymore and you wanted to achieve a state of peace or a state of closure. In that moment, did you feel like you wanted to die? I've been very fortunate in that I've never been explicitly suicidal in my thinking. I think this, again, goes back to having a very prominent sense of faith and like believing in having a larger purpose and that this is not about me, but this is about me fulfilling what was meant for me. And on that particular moment because I was feeling all the feelings across the spectrum, naturally my first instinct was to, you know, end this really just incredible, uh, it's, I, I'm just trying to 
reach for a word that would explain the depth of the abuse that I experienced. Literally an ocean <laughs> of abuse. So I'm, I'm trying to be careful not to devalue or like belittle the experience. But because I was carrying all that burden on me and I also felt responsible for the incarceration of my parents and the suffering I had caused to others, I really did want it to end. And as I said earlier, that ending could have been tragic or a happy ending. Underneath my blindfold, I noticed that the guard in front of me had a gun attached to his belt. And, you know, I even thought about reaching for the gun and trying to have my Wild West moment where <laughs> I would try to defend myself, you know, try to get out of that situation. But what are the chances? You know, I, I had my handcuffs on and I had my feet cuffed. So there was really no way of, by the time I would have taken his gun, somebody would have shot me, you know. So a lot of things were going through my head. But yes, primarily I thought if death would be an escape and it was an escape within reach, I did think maybe that was a good way of just putting an end to the suffering. But as I said, I didn't really see it as a way of, I appreciate death, but it's more like, please just end it. Like, I don't want this to drag on for any longer. I've had enough. Thankfully, it didn't happen. It must have taken just an unbelievable amount of strength, resilience to get through that horrific ordeal, Anna. Before we talk about your release, how did you get through it? And what scars or triggers did that moment and that experience leave on you and your mental health? Well, there's a lot of scars that I haven't yet even pinpointed. As I said, I still have the cardiac arrhythmia. I have PTSD, which I'm trying to shift to PTSG, <laughs> which is post-traumatic stress growth. No, sorry, post-traumatic growth. So distancing from trauma and stress and using it to grow but well I didn't really allow much healing for myself while I was incarcerated you know I think a uh, human mind is so resilient and able to adjust to a moment where when the attack is happening or when you are in a very extremely difficult situation your mind is almost just constantly prepared to fight so the fight or flight mode and because I had the fight or flight mode for such a continuously long period of time, I think the part of my brain that deals with trauma still sometimes, even though I'm no longer in a place where I have to fight or flight, it sometimes is triggered active in the wrong places. So I'm really working on that still, especially because I'm carrying the cumulative effect of a prolonged traumatic incident. So it will take many more months or perhaps years to dissect that and dismantle it and trying to work through it like almost like material that you are trying to rearrange as you would like a montage almost. Let's talk about the positive end to this part of your journey because you were eventually released on bail in August 2016 before being finally acquitted in September 2017. 
Can you tell me about this part of your journey now and how it came to be that the, your dad, who was also imprisoned, and you gained your freedom? Our case was never in the headlines whilst we were imprisoned. That was for a few reasons, but the primary reason was because when you have advocacy campaigns, you have to have a leading figure that takes the campaign forward and that person needs to be free and they have to be in a safe place and they have to be consistent. And because we were arrested as a family, we never really had that person. So usually when you look at more prominent campaigns, either the wife is outside or the husband is or the brother or someone who is in the West. And for us, we were all in Iran. <laughs> So we thought it's better not to try to leak any information because there wouldn't be someone trustworthy taking the campaign forward. And usually what ends up happening with campaigns that are not well planned is that it ends up steering into waters that you wouldn't want it to be. And it can actually turn against you as well. Not intentionally, but the Revolutionary Guards can use what the media says against you. And we, we just didn't want to risk it. So everything that happened, happened behind the closed doors and through what is called quiet diplomacy. So we have Finnish passports as well. So the Finnish Foreign Ministry, the British Foreign Ministry, the Iranian Foreign Ministry, all of them were aware of our circumstances. And they really... At least from my experience, they did try their best. And also my grandfather, who was outside, he was constantly in touch with the court. So the diplomacy didn't secure my release personally. My release was secured in exchange of my bail and other assets that were extorted from my family. So my bail was never returned to me, despite the fact that in September 2017, as you mentioned, I was acquitted. Now, they said they acquitted me on goodwill because when I had committed these crimes, I had been under the age of 18, which is just farcical. It's such a blow to who you are as a, you know, as a human being. So not only have they violated my human rights, but they've recognized that they've done the violation and yet they are unwilling to admit it. So it's like, you know that what you did was wrong and yet you still have to make excuses for yourself. Anyway, so my dad was eventually released in January 2018. It was a very long, prolonged legal battle that involved a lot of different segments of the Iranian society, including the Supreme Leader's office. So, you know, there were important power quarters at play, but it would just be too long for me to explain them in this podcast. And I'm sure your listeners would be like, oh, this is getting too political. But yeah, it was definitely, it wasn't the work of one person. I did a lot of work myself. I was chasing people. I'm not even joking, but I did go to the Supreme Leader's office. I actually never saw him, of course. <laughs> but I... Remember, I went to his office and I said, I'm not leaving until I'll see someone. And I was there for about three, four days. Obviously, I would go home at night, but I, was I would come the next day. And eventually, they allowed me to see someone who was dealing with legal matters at the special court that I was in. And 
I also worked through my connections and people I knew to get through to Sohrab Soleimani. So Sohrab Soleimani is the head of Iran prisons organization, but he's also the brother of Qasem Soleimani. He was the most, perhaps the most important general that was orchestrating the activities of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards in the Middle East, so in Iraq, Lebanon, and he was assassinated in January 2020. So I saw his brother and, you know, I was trying to ask him to release my dad. As I said, you know, different people, different organizations, our whole entire family, we all really tried our best without resorting to media, which was incredibly difficult because you want validation, you want the world to recognize and accept that what you're going through is wrong and you want them to rally for your release and when we didn't have that it's like oh you know the whole burden is on you but I'm happy that now I'm able to share it because you know there's a saying that says a trouble shared is a trouble halved and I really really appreciate that now when I'm able to speak about it freely because at the time I truly wasn't able to do that. After you were granted freedom you tried to lodge a complaint to the court, which might have put you back into trouble. And I think this is something that Jake Hammerhan, good friend of the pod who interviewed you previously, kind of was a little bit incredulous by when you uh, when you told him. Did you think that was a, a bit of a mistake given the gravity of the situation? And then how did that moment of true freedom feel when you landed back in the UK? You know, I think when you've been in Iran for four years, which I was at the time, and you've kind of seen the deep end of how things could go wrong, I almost feel like you lose that sense of fear that you would otherwise have, and you become incredibly courageous and brave and almost ballsy, like, oh, well, you know, I've seen the worst. What have you got in plans? I've been in 2A and I've been in the interrogation cell. I've been tortured. I've been in soldier confinement. What more have you got? And I'm sure there is plenty that they could have done to me. You know, there is far more horrendous stories that I've heard from other inmates that I met in Evan prison. And also subsequently, as I've read, as I've engaged with their work. So again, I was a bit naive when I thought that there wasn't anything else that they could do because, yeah, the truth is different. But I also felt like I needed that closure. I needed them to say, okay, well, we know what we did was wrong and we'll accept that. But I think because I saw so many people in Iran, both from my family and also from, even from governmental organizations seemingly trying to help us, I thought maybe there is hope that there are good guys out there, even within this system, that will say, hey, what we did was not right. So let's set the record straight and let's, you know, straighten things out and let's compensate for the wrongs we've done. But yeah, that's not what they're about. They're not there to hug you when you feel sad. They're not there to make you feel better. And that was a really slap in the face because I really had hopes that there might be people in there that would be different. And now that I've gone on to advocacy and human rights work, when I meet people who say, but Iran has people that are moderates and then they have hardliners and then they have progressives and there are plenty of people that try to make Iran a better place, I can't help but feel 
disappointed because they all operate under the same hegemonic authority and they all thrive and succeed when Iran is isolated from the world. People who are currently making a living in Iran, they do not want to rekindle their relationship with the West because that would mean that their own grip of power would be under jeopardy. So that really gave me an insight to how the country operates because I was in the deep end of the security system and I was a victim, but I also was an observant. So I have a very different understanding of Iran than what some Iran experts have and have to say. I want to talk about the Anna post-imprisonment in this final part of the topic. Firstly, what did that experience teach you about yourself, do you think, Anna? Oh, that's a good question. Um, Honestly, sometimes I feel like I would really love to go back to 2014, Anna. And really, you know, shake her like this and say, what are you thinking? Like, don't be so naive. Study more. Educate yourself. Be aware. Be alert. Again, this is not to victim blame, not to say I was at fault, but it's just to know your adversaries. You need to know who you're up against. And, you know, most of the time our fears and our ignorance comes from or the hostility we feel comes from a place of not understanding what's going on, right? So the more you're able to study and have a better grasp of your surroundings and of yourself, the more helpful it will be. In a way, I would say being naive helped me because the interrogator saw that I wasn't trying to be, you know, I wasn't intentionally trying to be a rebel. I wasn't trying to cause them trouble deliberately. But at the same time, had I known better, I would have been mentally more prepared. I wouldn't have allowed them to beat me up and scar me to the extent that they did. You know, I would have had my guards up a bit more and I would have been, I think, more armored psychologically, at least. But however, I did also learn that Anna is an incredibly, you know, not to toot my own horn, but <laughs> but I did see that, honestly, again, I have been able to adjust to any given circumstances. And I'm just so proud of myself because it's not easy. I'm not saying that if anyone else would have been in my situation, they would have done worse or that they wouldn't have been able to adjust. It's just that personally, for me, I think the ability to evolve and change with the times was and is very valuable. A really important quote I want to read out from you, Anna, when we spoke off air was this, I'm done being resilient. I'm sick of people just saying persevere. Explain that for me and, and how it plays into this part of your mental health recovery. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm just, you know, when people say be resilient and persevere, I mean, it's great. Yeah, we should all practice those qualities. But, you know, you advise people to persevere when, for example, when you're having a hard time paying rent this month, 
but you know that by next month you'll be okay. Maybe you have some bad spending habits and you have to correct those and then next month you'll be fine. Or maybe when you are, I don't know, you have many exams and you have to get through all of them, you say, okay, I have to persevere, I have to study hard, I need to stay cool under this pressure. And so in that context, in my opinion, you can say, hey, yes, persevere, stay strong. But then when you are, when you have someone who's being so incredibly hurt and in a way traumatized, not just in my own experience, but for example, for sexual assault victims or for people who've had severe emotional or physical abuse, you can't tell them to be resilient. You know, it's like saying, I don't even know what it's like saying, but it's actually very disrespectful. And so I think... You know, I mean, we've seen we are seeing great changes in society towards mental health, but the understanding of how to deal with people who have trauma is still very minimal, I think. Yeah, I feel like the conversation just needs to shift its angle almost. Persevere and stay resilient are great qualities to have, as I said, but you can't say that and project those in every single conversation regardless of circumstances and as a final question we talked a little bit earlier about post-traumatic growth tell me a bit more about how it affects you and what you want to use it for when it comes to your mental health journey do you think we can shift the paradigms of PTSD you know I live with PTSD I'm hoping I don't I won't live with PTSD soon and maybe in a few more years but do you think we can shift it if we work hard on ourselves and it is possible yes so I'm still working through it myself. I haven't yet reached the peak of healing where I can speak with utter bliss and peace. Because the way I see trauma is, you know, it's almost like you are cycling and then you fall down and then you have a, you get a wound on your knee and then it's open and it's bleeding and then you look after it a bit and then it closes down through granulation or contractions but like the wound closes and then you fall again and then it reopens or maybe you're stretching and then it reopens so until you really are careful around the wound until you put a band-aid on it or or you know use ointments and whatnot it will continuously basically rip open again and even when it heals it leaves scar tissue right so i think trauma is in a way quite similar because the scar tissue will always be there you'll look at your knee and see it's there and you'll remember the time it happened but you still continue living you know you you'll get married you'll have children you will move countries you'll do all of that and so with trauma it's like you have to work with it not to move on but to move forward and people again like people always bounce back from having a trauma but i think in my head what i'm really trying to do is bounce forward you know use the trauma for increased appreciation of life for inner strength to embrace the potentially revolutionizing change that it can give me because in a way you can really use your experience to take you forward. And the way I see it is that there is link between suffering and success. And it's an unlikely link and nobody really thinks of it that way. But I I actually read a book on this and it said, succeeding not despite of your trauma, but because of your trauma. 
So like you're using it as an additional quality to you to understand people more, to have more empathy, to have an insight. I remember again, I was reading a Twitter feed about a sexual assault survivor and she said that, so she's a therapist and she says her clients have really appreciated the insight she brings because she understands where they're coming from. You know, she understands their suffering. And of course, it's very difficult for her. How do you protect your boundaries? And, and how do you stop not being re-traumatized? But it's almost like it's an asset. And, and you can only utilize that asset once you have been able to reclaim the narrative and make peace with it and accept it. To visualize it, trauma is like a story, right? You have a three-act structure. You have life before trauma, you have the trauma, and then you have life after trauma, right? And that's the narrative structure. But how do you fill in the gaps? You know, will it be a tragedy or will it be a feel-good story? Our final topic of conversation, Anna, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? I'm doing okay. Yeah, I'm doing well. It's work in progress, but we're, we're keeping head above the water, so. Excellent. And what age do you think you were when you first became self-aware and realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? Oh, this is a good question. I was a late bloomer. <laughs> Honestly, probably until very recently. So I would say age 24, because mental health, the way I had been, much like my generation, had been introduced to topics of mental health. You know, mental health was seen as this dark gray area that meant I don't know, like people with mental health issues were seen as the misfits of society. You know, they were excluded. There was stigma. It's like, oh, mental health, what does that mean? Schizophrenia? Or are you just completely out of your mind? And all the films that we would watch, and I'm sure you can relate, it's like people with mental health issues would be placed in psychiatric wards and they would be force-fed medication and they would be in, in this vegetative state. And so when you grew up <laughs> with that culture and those cultural commodities where mental health is not portrayed in a positive, progressive light, you don't want to associate with it naturally, right? So I think it was until very recently that just a few years ago, I said, well, I have this thing that I went through <laughs> and I feel like I need help. And so after I got help for my the PTSD due to the Iran ordeal, it was that I started to look far further, you know, my childhood and my teenage years. And it's, it was like a Pandora's box. I was like, oh, wow, let me study this part of my life more. But I mean, luckily with the current generation and the changing patterns in our society, mental health is becoming a more prominent topic. And rightfully so, because I think trauma is an equalizer. You know, despite your class, your ethnicity, your age, your gender, people around me and even strangers that I see or meet, you know, we all have stories that we carry, right? And most of those stories, nobody will ever know. 
I'm in a very privileged position to come and speak about it. Not many people have reached that point yet. But understanding that trauma is an equalizer and that it's almost like this cloud waiting to rain, right? And everyone has that cloud above themselves. I think it's a very positive thing that like podcasts like yourself and people who are interested in mental health are coming to dominate our public discussion forums because for too long it's been ignored and for too long it's been misrepresented. So I'm very hopeful for the next generation and even for my own generation. When you have a society that's been built in a way that doesn't really accommodate mental health issues, it can be hard to change that structure. But, you know, I mean, change is happening and, and hopefully it will be a better time in the next years to come. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health, Anna? Who was it with? What impact did it have? And at the time, did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted or a part of you had changed? Maybe you'd entered a new chapter in your life? Or did it seem quite insignificant and normal to you? How do you look back on it? Uh, I think I've had counsellors and individuals that have asked about my psychological well-being throughout my life I never really considered them as mental health discussions because again as I said you know I didn't ever allow myself to see it that way but I would say the most prominent one that I really remembered as a starting point for my mental health journey or my healing journey was when I was referred to a university counsellor and I um, attended the first session and I remember I had been referred to her because of some anxiety issues so at the time it wasn't diagnosed as PTSD and I remember I, I sat there and she was ready for me to explain some I don't know, some basic anxieties around university and exams and essays. And I started talking about imprisonment. (laughs) And she just didn't know how to handle it. And then in the next session, I was met with someone else. And I thought, but wait, I explained so much to the previous person. And this is a new one. And I have to re-explain myself. So I think... The journey of, so within the past three, four years, I have spoken with, I would say, seven or eight different therapists. And I learned that it's okay not to be on the same page with your therapist. You might walk in, you might think that they don't take you seriously, or it might feel pretentious, which is what I felt in the beginning. I thought it was almost like a forceful discussion. But then once you find someone who is really on the same wavelength, it will come organically. It would literally flow. And yeah, as I said, it took me about three years to find that person. And all the individuals before that, you know, I never felt connection with them. And, you know, that's okay. It's kind of like trying to find a life partner. You will be seeing, I don't know, how many people until you click with someone. And therapist is actually quite similar to that because you're exposing something so incredibly vulnerable so you really need to find the so-called right person which is a bit difficult in the UK I think if you can't afford that because NHS might assign you to see someone and then you wait for god knows how long and then you see them and then you don't click with them so you don't really have the option of saying hey I don't really match with this person can you refer me to someone else? 
I actually know someone who did this and they're still on a waiting list. But it's it's trial and error and you know, you need to commit to making yourself better the way you commit to career progression, the way you commit to having fun with friends, the way you commit to making money. It requires equal amount of time and energy. And outside of therapy, what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health, Anna, or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but maybe haven't? Oh, this is a good question. I do a lot of grounding. So I try to walk bare feet in the garden. That helps when I'm feeling very overwhelmed. I try to sleep a lot (laughs) because I think rest is very important. And it's not always about getting eight hours of sleep, but it's actually getting good sleep. And good sleep can be three hours, but it can be, you know, a rejuvenating sleep. So it's not really about the length of it, but the quality of it. You also have to find things to invest your spare time in that make you feel good. For some people, it's gym. For others, it's reading. For me personally, it was reading. So I think books really saved me. Reading has always been like a constant companion as I was growing up. And it's been loyal to me to this very day. So, yeah, you just have to find a way to keep busy, but not just for the sake of keeping busy, but something that you really enjoy doing. And as a final question, Anna, and it's a broad one, what more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or their mental health if they want to do it? I think the first nationwide step that we could take is to really destigmatize mental health which we are doing at the moment you know we've done incredible work and and i'm really really happy to be living in a generation where we see that shift but we also need more people of color and people from minority groups and people of different sexual orientation and all across the spectrum we also need those people in these professions. Yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to go into that because out of the seven therapists that I saw, I've seen, one of them was a person of color. What I'm trying to say is that it's much more helpful if you have a black counselor or a therapist who comes from the same background as you or who understands the context, understand the gravity of your trauma. So more people that are in minority groups or in the periphery of the society coming into these professions, because only then we can really have more people coming forward and say, hey, I also need help because I know this person will understand me. Anna Diamond, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Freddie. Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. And what an episode it was. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Anna for being my special guest for this episode and for letting me check in with her. If you've got to the end of this episode, listeners, thank you. And please give yourself some time to self-care after listening to that. I'll put a link to where you can follow Anna's work on social media and find out more about all of the stuff she's doing in the show notes. As always, thank you to everyone who's tuned into this episode, to all the episodes so far. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. 
the at is at vent help uk on all channels tell your friends tell your work colleagues about it please write us a review if you're feeling generous and give us a rating on apple Podcasts. it really really helps the algorithms out and gets more people seeing what we do at vent if you like what we're doing and want to support us more, please consider supporting our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or if you want to do a one-off donation, you can go to our GoFundMe page. That's in the link tree on all the channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to vent.